Welcome to the School of Faith podcast. I'm Chris Nye. Today, we have uh, the first part of a four-part class on the biblical narrative. That is the story arc of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. We wanted to do a 30,000-foot view of what scripture is teaching and along the way, the implications of the narrative. And this was part of a series we did this summer of summer studies. We did a theology track, which this was the class for the theology class, a personal growth class on the Enneagram and discipleship. And we did a foundations class uh, leading people through the knowledge of the holy by aw tozer to get the attributes of god familiar with those who wanted that teaching um yeah today is the first part of the biblical narrative class it's on creation uh, genesis 1 and the beginnings and what the doctrine of creation teaches us about the grand story of scripture or god's will across all scripture and therefore god's will into our lives now so this is a, a long class but man gear up where you go through scripture quickly um, but it was really fun for me to teach this class this summer on the biblical narrative. So here's part one on creation. So your Bible's a story. It, it traces from Genesis to Revelation. And that story can be told in kind of five simple acts that we call them. Now, your book, and i got to give you the spoiler here, the drama of scripture that you have before you has six acts in it okay we're just gonna do we're gonna kind of push them together into five because i think you can you can do that um you can kind of take two and make them one and that book is going to help you understand the different movements of scripture um you know like in acts in a play right there's like one act and a second act well this scriptures kind of have five or six movements that it makes across genesis to revelation and what we want to do over the next five weeks is look at those five movements those five acts and see uh, what significance they have, and then how do they work together. And my goal is that at the end of this class, you actually understand your Bible a lot better to know where you are in the story when you're jumping into your Bible. When you're, you know, at church and you open to Proverbs because your pastor says, open to Proverbs. Or sometime at Awakening, somebody says, open to Isaiah. Or open to the Gospel of Mark. You kind of know where in the story you are. And then also, in addition to that, why is that piece of the story significant? What does it teach us? And so we're going to look through each of these pieces of the story. So on your notes, as you kind of begin, uh, there's an 8.5 by 11 sheet. Uh, we're big on note-taking at Awakening. If you haven't noticed, every week there's notes for you. Uh, at School of Faith, uh, I, I would highly, highly suggest you start taking notes. You also have uh, a little Awakening uh, journal. That's a gift to you if you so choose to take it. Um, and you can take notes on the 8.5 by 11 sheet, or you can take them in the Awakening journal, however you want to roll. But the Bible as a story kind of moves through these five areas. And I actually want to tell you this, this line down below. It says, the, the story as a circle and not a line. That's what I want to show you first at this beautiful whiteboard illustration. Um, so the Bible uh, tells a story from a Hebrew worldview. Right? It started not with Americans, it didn't start with white people, it did not start in Europe. It started in the Middle East, in a time that is very distant from the time we are today. And as the story got told, and even as the story got shaped, as your Bible got put together, the center of Christianity was not even so much in Jerusalem as it was in Northern Africa and kind of the south of the Middle East. As that story kind of expanded, they started telling the story in a very a different way than Americans tell a story. Americans tell a story, uh, and Westerners, I'll, I'll just say, tell stories 
from beginning to end. It's linear, it's as a line, right? It's like beginning, middle, and end. That's how we tell all of our great stories. But the biblical story is told in a circle. It's, it's told the way that Jewish people tend to tell stories is that the beginning is actually the end and the end is actually the beginning. That uh, if, you, if you ever see uh, like uh, the, 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 this is maybe a deep cut for some of you, but if you've ever heard of the Cohen brothers, they're like these two filmmakers right now that are making stories and they're both Jewish men and they tell stories that tend to work this way, that you find yourself at the end of the movie and you find yourself back at the beginning. Uh, it's actually a very Hebrew way of telling stories. And the Bible is told this way. The Bible starts with a story of creation. Uh, the story of creation, which we're going to talk about tonight, is the story of God making the earth and making people and organizing it. And then, though, the story takes a dramatic turn just three chapters into a fall, which we'll talk about next week. Okay, That's the second act, the second movement uh, in the story of Scripture. That's the story of all of creation rebelling slowly uh, against the God that created them. Uh, after that, the story, most of your Bible, most of your Bible is taken up in this passage of re rebellion. So after the fall, after the sin, after the rebellion against, or, uh, the initial rebellion against God, you actually have a long bit of story that takes you through the rebellion of God's people and the people he created. Only at the start of the New Testament, this will be in week four, will we get to the point of redemption, when Jesus Christ enters the earth. And when he shows up, he starts preaching about redemption and about buying back the creation. And it's strange, by the time you get to Revelation, you actually end up back at the beginning. If you read Revelation 21 and 22, you realize the scene is basically set the same as Genesis chapter 1. You're in a garden, but this garden is placed in the middle of a city. There's a tree in the middle of that garden. Does this sound familiar, right? Uh, in, in, in this place, God's presence is with God's people in God's particular place. This is the same story as Eden, just retold again. And so creation turns to new creation. And all of a sudden you find yourself back at the beginning. That God is actually working, and this is part of, we'll talk about this in week four, part of what this word means, to buy back, to purchase, to return to its original position. The story of the Bible is not beginning, middle, end. The story of the Bible is beginning, middle, beginning, new beginning. Uh, there, it doesn't end and everyone's at peace and floating in the sky in ethereal happiness. It ends in a new created world. Physicality. Uh, the, the story of scripture in, in Revelation to not give away the final week, but the final week we'll talk about how the Bible does not end with all of us on earth going up into an ethereal heaven. But if you read it very plainly and simply, it ends with not us earth going to heaven, but heaven coming to earth. And that difference is the difference in everything in the biblical narrative to understand where we're going and what we're doing. So let me give you five key words that will guide your time and hopefully get you to remember these kind of five movements. The first word creation that we're going to talk about today, the first word to help you remember it, I'll put it in a different color, is Eden. And Eden literally means luxuriance. It means luxuriance in Hebrew. The key word for the fall is the word tree. We'll talk about that. These are images, by the way, for you to help picture so that you can remember the story as you open your Bible. Eden, tree, the key word for re rebellion is Israel. Israel is God's nation, and it's a Hebrew word that means 
he who wrestles or strives with God, which is really beautiful when you think about it, that God chose to name his people the people who will wrestle with himself, <laughs> the people who will strive with him, that will struggle with him. Eden, tree, Israel, redemption is easy. This is all Jesus. This is where we see kind of the linchpin to the story, the key point of the story. And the new creation word is Jerusalem. And I'll kind of leave that a mystery until the last week. So your Bible takes you through these kind of five movements over time. Now, roughly put, your Bible will break up into those books if you just kind of look at your Bible at a at kind of a, you know, chron from a chronological place. Creation is Genesis 1 and 2. I suppose I could go in a third color here and see if this one works. Genesis 1 to 2. The fall is just one chapter, Genesis 3, but that's the most, we have to take a whole week on it because without understanding Genesis 3, you're going to really not understand the rest of your Bible. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we have to walk through really, really slowly. These are key moments in the story. Um, and a little bit of the coloring will happen when you read your book, too. Um, the rebellion in Israel can really take place from Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3 and chapter 4, all the way through the end uh, into Malachi of the Old Testament. That's why I say most of your Bible. Now, it's not all history, and we'll get into that in the third week, the that chunk of scripture is, there's a lot of wisdom literature, there's a lot of poems, there's a lot of uh, prophecy and prophetic literature, and then there's historical narratives, too, that push the story forward, that keep the story moving, okay? And all of these things kind of keep the story moving, um, but in different ways, right? Kind of speaking different ways. The story of redemption is the story of the Gospels. Those are, that's Matthew through John, and we're going to tackle the book of Acts as well which is the story of, um, and Felicia will talk about this in, uh, in week three, uh, that Matthew through John tells the story, the, the, the four different angles of the story of redemption of the life of Jesus, but equally to that, the story of redemption enacted by the church happens in this as well, and that's in the book of Acts, is that the redemption story is actually not limited to um, the the gospel books, but it's actually like expanded a little bit in the book of Acts. I'll show you this real fast at the beginning of um, Acts chapter 1. This is the preamble that the author Luke is giving, and he says in the first book, he's addressing one of his benefactors who's probably going to publish this book uh, across, you know, hopefully multiple languages. I really believe Luke was hoping a lot of languages would be produced out of this. Look at this. In the first book, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. All that Jesus began to do. What's his first book? Luke's first book is called what? This is an easy one. Thank you. Okay, that's not a trick question. I'm just trying to get you guys to stay awake with me. Okay. Yeah, his first book. He's like, I dealt with everything Jesus began to do and teach. But now what I'm going to do until the day he was taken up, he gave his commands through the Holy Spirit and the apostles whom he chosen. Then he starts to tell for the next 28 chapters the story of the church. You see... The story of redemption through Jesus, and then the story of redemption through the church. All Jesus was doing is beginning it. This is all that Jesus began to do and teach. Uh, from here on out, it's the church that takes the message of redemption into the new creation. So, just to give you the spoiler, spoiler alert, where do you and I find ourselves in the story? Well, somewhere around here. <laughs> 
But you are part of a story, and part of this book, the subtitle to it is Finding Your Place in the Biblical Something, the Biblical Story. Finding Your Place in the Biblical Story. Um, I'll give you the spoiler alert and tell you, you and I sit right here in the history of humanity. But while there's a whole lot of history behind us, um, Jesus talks about this idea of eternal life and an eternal kingdom that will not die, and that kingdom will go on forever and bring us back to uh, the life of creation. Uh, with God. So that's the story of, of the Bible uh, kind of put to a circle as opposed to a beginning, middle, and end. Now, I don't think it's a bad thing to talk about a beginning, middle, and end, um, but the reason I like to have a beginning again is because I really believe that in new creation in New Jerusalem, when you read Revelation 21 and 22, like the authors are very keen on repeating a lot of Eden language in the New Jerusalem. And uh, what started as a garden narrative that we're going to look at today ends in a garden city, like a garden that's in the middle of a city. And so it's more developed and it's more progressive and it's more cultured and it's more human. It's more human. There's like human stuff in it, which is the cities. Uh, there's art, there's culture, there's architecture, um, right? There's city planning in the New Jerusalem. There's like roads and byways and highways that is described in the end of the book of Revelation. But at, at the end of the day, they're also painting that God is kind of bringing us back to uh, kind of a threefold position, which is God's people in God's place um, with God's presence. Those three words, people, place, and presence, are kind of in Eden. So that's, that's the whole story. Um, that paints you kind of the picture of where we're going over the next five weeks. Any questions thus far? I know it's a big room, so I feel like some people won't want to ask questions in front of the big group, but some might be bold to stab at a question right now. I just want to pause, too. All right, we'll do questions at the end, too. So save them and write them down. So let's look at the creation story uh, to get to the very beginning of this book uh, and to get to the very beginning of the story. This idea of creation and Eden is Genesis 1 and 2. And uh, in your notes here, you'll see that I have kind of three key words, creating, cosmos, and care. And the sentence that you can make out of that is that the story, story of creation it is God creating the cosmos with care. Creating the cosmos with care. We're pastors. We have to do alliteration. It's kind of a rule. Um, but it also helps you remember it. I'm trying to help you, like, you know, be able to tell this story at some point and tell this part of the story. So let's look at the beginning of creation, at the beginning uh, of your Bible in Genesis chapter 1. If you brought a Bible, you could open it there. I'll also have it on the screen and try to jump around as fast as I can uh, on the screen. But I want to give you some key words. And, and this first idea is this idea of creating. And this sentence that I have before you in that first fill in the blank is the theology of creation. The theology of creation. What does it mean that God created the heavens and the earth? So look with me here at Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Th these first two sentences uh, are really, really important. Before you get into the rest of this kind of story, uh, this is almost the header. Genesis 1 and 2 is kind of like the heading on this chapter. It's almost like the... You know, if, if chapter 1 is entitled The Creation of the World, chapters 1 and, or sorry, verse 1 and 2 is like the subtitle of that, right? 
It's like, this is what I'm about to tell you. I'm about to tell you that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and there's darkness over the face of the deep. Before I get into kind of the poetics of this story, this is what I'm about to talk to you about in verses 1 and 2. In breaking down verses 1 and 2, I really think it helps you understand the rest of this story. The creation narrative, if you're any history in Christianity, if you've been around the church at all, it's littered with really, really bad interpretations. It's littered with like a lot of complications. There's a huge kind of debate that we have gone through that I hope we're closing on right now about uh, evolution and science and how the Bible works with that. And so understanding the theology of creation is really important. Here's kind of what I'm, what I'm saying. It's really important to know what is this author trying to do? Is this author trying to answer scientific questions? Is this author, author trying to answer philosophical questions? What is this author trying to do? Well, I think in these first two sentences, we actually get to know what this author is trying to do and get kind of a theology of creation. So the first is this idea of time, this first line, right? In the beginning, in the beginning. In the beginning, like I said, is kind of this, this header, but it doesn't really tell you anything other than, uh, than, than what it says, right? It doesn't really tell you at what time in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and also it doesn't even define what heavens and the earth are. Uh, let me help you with that. The Hebrews' understanding was very simplistic. You have to remember, the person writing this is thousands of years removed from you. They're also removed from you across so many cultures that like, we have to do a lot of leaping to just guess at what this person is probably trying to say. But we can safely assume this person has no understanding of the modern scientific method. They have no understanding of biology, and they have no understanding of like cosmology, really that much cosmology. What they do have an understanding of, though, is the God who created all of that, right? And so the purpose of the creation narrative is to set you into a time that they actually don't really know, okay? In the beginning, when it all started, the heavens and the earth, right? Does that mean the galaxies, the black holes, the Milky Way, Saturn? Can I just simplify this for you? An ancient Hebrew would read this like this. When it all started, God created everything up there and everything down here. God created everything I see up there and everything I see down here. And at the start of all of it, God was there and God created those things. Just pause there and take a deep breath and say, that's where you have a great theology of creation, is to just know that to be an Orthodox Christian is to believe Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. What I mean by that is if you want to line yourself with thousands of years of church history, really where you need to land is Genesis 1, verse 1. Do you believe we have an old earth or a young earth? Uh, do you believe that the earth was created in six literal days? Or do you take what we're about to take uh, and dive into this and be more poetic? Well, I actually think that you can be an Orthodox Christian and be in line with Genesis chapter 1 and just by uh, ascribing to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created what's up there and what's down there. How did he do it? The author is about to tell you the only thing he really tells you is he created it by his word let there be let there be let there be there's no mechanics involved in it though why are there no mechanics in it because this was written by an ancient hebrew writer who probably didn't even understand the mechanics of his own body let alone germs dietary issues what to eat and what not to eat but what these writers really knew and this is really really important these writers knew who god was and they knew his nature and they knew his character 
And what the author is trying to do is set the stage for you and for me to tell you who this God really is. And that's the second point, right? This idea of person. In the beginning, God. Who is God? Well, the first word there uh, for God is just the word El. Uh, the word is a very simple word for God. Uh, for Elohim is kind of the longer version of it. And it's a Hebrew word that actually literally just means that. means God. means the spiritual being, the divine being. And in the beginning, God was the one who created. So the really, really important thing, that's the really basic thing, is that it was God who created. Uh, there, was, there, was, there was an initiator. If you subscribe to evolution and see a more theistic evolution worldview, again, that's great. I think that's within the confines of Orthodox Christianity. It's just about who started that process, who began, uh, who began the Big Bang, who began the evolutionary process, who, who guided the evolutionary process. In the beginning, it was God who created it. If you take a literal six-day creation, it's to literally see God as the one who created all things, the one who started the six days and was there for all six days. In the beginning, we have to believe God created the heavens and the earth. Um, and actually, your Bible is kind of filled with random passages that back this up, like Psalm 33.6. Look at this. This is a psalm. This is like an ancient song, Hebrew writer singing moody guy with an acoustic guitar perhaps by the word of the lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their host he gathers the water of sea as a heap he puts the deeps in storehouses this idea of like fearing god in verse eight right he spoke look at verse nine for he spoke and it came to be he commanded and it stood firm so this is just like this is what the hebrew people believed they they believed god was the one who created all things even later at the very end of the story so i just took you to the middle of the story in the rebellion story now let's take you into the redemption kind of towards the end of the redemption story in in revelation 4. there's this image of heaven that john has at the very end of your bible and at this image of heaven that john gets he gets all these angelic and humans human beings and angelic beings kind of worshiping god and look at how they worship him in verse 11. Worthy are you, Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power. Why is God worthy to receive glory, and honor, and power? For you created all things. The reason God should be worshipped is because he created all things, and by your will, look it, they existed and were created. So it's not just that he created all things. This is deism, by the way. Deism is the watchmaker, if you've ever heard this. Uh, I designed the watch, I set the watch, and then I just let it go. Right? And I just let the watch tick out until it's done. That's a deistic worldview that's kind of heretical in Christianity. Christianity is not deistic where the God is kind of distant and like creates it and then sets it and is like, I hope this works out. God not only created it, but by, their, by his will, all things exist. All things continue in existence because of his continued presence in the world. That's why all these, all these angelic beings and human beings are worshiping God at the end of the story. It, it's not even necessarily because he redeemed them from all things. You see, here's my point. We worship God not because what he has done for us. We worship God because of who he is, right? We don't worship God because he's a utility, like, oh, he's useful to me, therefore I will worship him. You don't sing to God because he's useful to you. You sing to God because he's beautiful, because he's perfect, because he created all things, because he is God. That's why you worship him, right? All of the other things are out of his great grace and goodness that only should encourage you in worship, right? But if all God ever did was create life and sustain it, he would be worthy of worship and honor. 
kind of important. Yeah, and it seems that at the end of the story, after all this crap, excuse my language, after all this crap happens, what is the thing they're worshiping at the end when new creation is about to, um, yeah, it seems the image of heaven is like they're worshiping him just because of Genesis chapter one. That's all. So back to the story. Genesis one. God created, that's the action, by the way. So that next point is like his, his, his action is that God created and that we worship him because of his creation. Uh, the Hebrew word used here uh, is a word that focuses on operation through organization and assignment of roles and functions. That's a very scholarly way to put it. I'm going to repeat it, but I'm going to kind of give you a like layman's way of thinking about it that helps me. It focuses on operation through organization and assignment of roles and functions. Okay, when we say God made the world, oftentimes we think uh, that God made it in that uh, he created it out of nothing, which he did, but he also not only created it out of nothing. So imagine your bed at home. It's not that just God created that bed, let's say, but it's also, what do you also say with your bed? You say somebody made that, but also you make your bed, don't you? Right? So there's two different kinds of ways to make a bed. One is to actually assemble it and design it and cut the wood and make it perfectly the way that it needs to be made. But the other way you say I made the bed is just when you organize and arrange it for a specific operation, i.e. getting snuggly, right? Like you <laughs> arrange it and organize it in such a way that is to comfort you and puts order to it. You put the pillows in a certain way. I learned to do this once I got married. I did not know how to do this. <laughs> my mother did not teach me how to do this. My wife did, right? It was like there's a specific way that the blankets go, that the pillows go, that are arranged in such a way that is pleasurable to the eye and easy to get into, right? You've, you've made the bed in a different way. Okay, God has made the world in both ways. That God has not only designed the bed and made the bed, but he has also orders it and arranges it. And actually, in this passage we're, gonna, we're looking at right now, in the creation of the world, Genesis 1 and 2, you see God doing both. You see God designing and creating it out of this creative explosion, basically, overflowing love into, into speaking things into being. Uh, like there's a famous Latin term that has been passed down through the centuries saying God created the world ex nihilo which means out of nothing, out of his word. There was nothing there, and then there was something. That God created the world out of no, uh, that was nothing. But you'll also notice, if you read this super slowly and carefully, that God not only created the world in that way, but he also created and made the world by organizing and arranging things that were previously made by him. Okay? See what I'm saying? He made the bed, and then he organizes it. He made the bed, and then he made the bed. Okay? He created the world, and then he created the world. He made the world, and then he made the world. It's two different forms of making, two different forms of creating. And we see that through the space that God's creating. That's your next word under action is this idea of the heavens and the earth. Okay, God created the heavens and the earth. Now look at verse 2. The earth was what? Without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So just between 1 and 2, if you want to read the Bible super literally, which you can, um, in this instance, I'm, I'm, I'm not even suggesting you have to, but you can in this instance. You'll notice that in between verse 1 and verse 2, the earth shows up. Okay, just take it very slowly. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
verse 2. The earth was without form and void. Okay, so God creates what's up there and what's down here. And what's down here didn't have any form, and it was void. Now, this Hebrew word in uh, formless and or without form and void is a play on words. The Hebrew sounds like this. It sounds like tohu vavohu. And it's a way of saying, uh, like the best English way is the scholar Robert Alter puts it, welter and waste. It's like this alliteration play on word. It's like it was just muddy and disgusting and disorganized. It was without form and void. It was tohu vavohu. And there was darkness over the face of the deep. It was just dark. It was like, it was like an unkempt room, right? It was like a disaster. You know, I don't know if you ever did this. Like uh, when I was younger and my room was a mess, I would leave the lights off so I wouldn't see like any of the, right? What was my room at that point? It was tohu vavohu. It was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep because the disorder didn't happen. And that's when God shines his light and says, let there be light, is that God was actually hovering over a disorganized and inoperable world when he began to order it, when he began to arrange it, right? You see, if you read this very slowly, you can kind of pick these things up because many people will point out that in Genesis 3, 4, 5, 6, that the order of these things doesn't make sense. Like light shows up and God calls it day and then there's an expanse of waters that separate the water and God separates the water. But how could God have a day after, right? When this is happening, when the, when the, sun, when the sun is happening, and there's just light, and he separates the light from the darkness, and he calls the light day, he calls the darkness night. There was evening, there's morning the first day, and then there's an expanse of waters. But wait a second, wasn't he hovering over the waters in verse two? Yeah, you see, when you try to get super wooden and literal with this stuff, you're not, you're gonna miss the point the author's trying to tell you, right? You're just, when you try to get like super literal with this, um, the Bible, I, I like to say, it, it, literal is a tough word for the Bible, Bible because there's a ton of metaphors. So the Psalms are not meant to be taken literally, okay? It's meant to be taken literarily, meaning like it's supposed to be taken the way that you would take in any literature. Okay, you read a poem or you read, you, you know you're not reading something exactly literal. And we have to be very careful about being like woodenly literal with scripture because we'll miss the point and we'll get in these stupid debates about literalism, um, which I, I think is actually dangerous. So God is chilling on the earth and he's arranging the earth and he's making it up in the way that he, he, he wants to make it up. And that's when we get verse three that he says, like let there, the whole let there be light. And we get a, an expanse of six days of creation. And all I wanna do is show you really the repetition. I don't need to go one by one through light, water, you know, all those things. But I want to look at what's repeated because one of the things in your Bible, and this is something important as you read your Bible, you've got to be able to learn like that repetition is like one of the key things in, in, in biblical interpretation. It helps you understand like that's almost them like bold, underline, there's an asterisk next to it. Next to it. This is the author really trying to emphasize uh, what they're trying to say. And so this, there's a couple things that are repeated. There's a let there be. There's a God said that's repeated over and over again. God said, there's a God let there be. There's a God made that's repeated. There's an it was so that's repeated. There's a God called, meaning he like names things, certain things. Uh, and then there's days that are repeated. Uh, and then the other thing that's really important, that thing we'll talk about a little bit later, is, is this line right here that's repeated over and over again. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. 
when God creates, he's creating something called a cosmos. And this is on your next page of your notes if you want to flip to the next page. We're already moving this fast. Mainly because we're about to slow down. But See all these repeats? God saw that it was good. Let there be, let there be, let there be. God is creating cosmos. Okay, He's creating something with order and abundance. So see those lines down there, right? That last one you can fill in first, okay? Order plus abundance equals cosmos. You can fill that in, in first. That's like the universe we live in, the world we live in, all right? That's kind of the best way to put it, the cosmos. Um, it's not just the Earth, planet Earth, but it's, it's galaxies and stars and worlds unknown that we have not seen and have not experienced at all. God created everything. He created the cosmos. Now let me explain this. What's the relationship of order and abundance? Order is the arrangement of particular objects, which he definitely does. If you just look at this, right? What is he doing when he's separating the land from the sea and he's separating the day from night? This is a key word right here. Separate. Oops. The heavens to separate the day from the night, right? He's trying to separate plants. He's trying to have uh, the creeping things on the ground and the birds of the air. So he's creating a level of order and arrangement of his creation. But here's the other thing he's doing. He's also doing a ton. He's doing a ton of, uh, of like explosive activity, of abundance. Okay, so here's what I mean. Not only is he separating the waters, but he's also saying, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. So he's like, I'm not only creating like an order and arrangement, I'm creating a ton of stuff. So there's like six days worth of it, which is, by the way, the Hebrew idea of seven and seven days is an order of completion. And so God is like completely and total, totally com uh, creating. He's just creating, creating, creating. And he's creating in the morning and he's creating at night. And he's creating every single day. So that's an idea of an abundance. But So not only is he creating in that way of let there be, let there be, but he's also separating waters, right? Okay, there's another line in, your, in Genesis 1 where it's like the birds of the air and the creeping things, right? There's going to be some things that fly. There's going to be other things that don't. There's going to be some things that have wings, others that don't. Some will eat vegetation. Some will not eat vegetation. These are things that are mentioned in the creation narrative. And then he tells these things. Uh, look at this. Okay, so God created great sea creatures, living creatures that move with which the waters swarm. Great line. Uh, and God saw that it was good. Look at what he does, though. What does he do to them? He blesses them, and he says, be fruitful and multiply. So here's what I mean. He's not just saying, okay, I'm going to create things in the water, and I'm going to create things on land. He's like, I'm going to create a lot of things in the water and a lot of things on the land, and then I'm going to tell those things on the water, in the land, and in the sky to just do it, <laughs> right? Uh, to just make more of themselves, to multiply. So... Here, do you see the relationship? Order and abundance. There's like order, but there's also just a lot of it. So abundance minus order, that first one, like if you just have a ton of stuff but no order, you have chaos. And our world is not as chaotic as many people would like it to seem, right? Many people will tell you that the world is, is a chaotic place. Um, but we actually have order. We actually have order, um, right? take a fish out of water, it will die, right? You clip a bird of its wings, it will not be able to fly. It needs its wings, right? Human beings need air, water, food, right? Your body needs certain things to function. There's an order in your body, right? 
the creation of a human being, a million things have to go right for that human being to be created. There's an order. There's a particular kind of like structure to the way that the world is built on its foundation. That's what we call science, right? Is the order. But if you only have that order and you have no abundance, that second thing, order without abundance. In other words, if God just created and did not ask the world to multiply and did not create, not just like, I'm not just gonna create one fish, but tons of fish. If you had that, it would be a construct. What does that mean? Well, a theoretical place that's just robotic. If God didn't have abundance and he just created an order, uh, we wouldn't have an interesting world, right? You ever seen a dog with three legs? It's like fascinating. They just adapt, man. Like dog loses its leg or it's born without a, a leg. It's like, I can roll with this. And like, I was in LA uh, a couple, over the last couple days visiting my brother and I saw like a little French bulldog uh, with no legs in the back and it had a scooter. Have you seen this with like wheels? The most precious thing in the world. He looked so down. He was like, I'm cool. Like I figured this out, right? <laughs> what has happened? Well, that's just part of, perhaps it was a mutation or an accident or something like that. Part of living in a cosmos in the world where we live in is we live in a world of order and abundance. Meaning there are variations. There are disformities. There are sad complications in a cosmos. There's, com complica there's just complications, right? When you create out of order and abundance, you get something more complex and interesting than a construct or a chaos. You get a cosmos. You get something where, yes, people are born with genetic dysfunctions. Um, there's incredibly sad cases in nature, in humanity, in this world because God did not create a construct. God did not create a world that was robotic, that was like um, perfectly functioning like a factory. He created a universe and part of the beauty of a universe is that you have ridiculously beautiful things and ridiculously sad things. And I think the Bible describes a world like that. I think the Bible describes a world where there is a Grand Canyon, but the reason there's a Grand Canyon is because there was massive volcanic or earthquake activity, right? There's, there's a reason the world is even orchestrated the way that it is right now. Because we live in a cosmos. We don't live in a construct. We don't live in this wooden box that's like perfectly arranged to God's order. Likewise, we don't live in this world that's completely chaotic that has no order. You'll notice further on down, God creates his crown jewel. 26. It says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. We'll get to this in a second. Over the birds of the air, over livestock. Okay, so God's going to create something different. He's going to create another layer of order. Okay, you see what he just did? He created a level of order. The order is, these ones are going to look like us. Whoops. These ones are going to look like us. They're not going to look like the fish. And they're not going to act like the fish. They're actually going to stab the fish and eat the fish. Right? They're going to have dominion over it. So they're gonna look like us, they're gonna be like us, and I'm gonna give them something called dominion over fish and birds and livestock, and over actually, ah, this is very important. Highlight, underline, that actually, God is setting up human beings to have rulership, dominion, we'll get to the word in a little bit, over the whole earth. So this is really important, because we know, all of you, have experienced something in your life, I'm sure, where you have been certain that could not be from God. 
uh, really, really sad occurrences, illnesses that you've struggled with, abuse that you've had to endure, relational discord, betrayal, uh, disease, divorce. When we go through these things, we have to remember that God does not rule this world like a totalitarian leader where he exerts his power over all things. It seems in his created order, well, this is the thing, in his created order, he chose to grant dominion to people. And it's one way you do, it's one way you run the world. And what I always like to tell people is you don't get to choose the world God created. You don't get to choose the kind of world God decided to make. God did not decide to make a robotic world. God did not decide to make a world where he exerts his power like a totalitarian leader. He did not decide to exert his power like a watchmaker, where he made this perfect watch and he would just click it into place. He decided to make a cosmos. And in this, he decided to share his power. It's the same way if any of you are parents, that you decide to parent your child in a particular way. You use your power to grant, I'll flip the metaphor, most of you aren't parents. I'm looking around, <laughs> losing some of you. Your parents chose to your parents chose to exert their power in a particular way. When the, you were born, they were automatically granted the power over you, and they could use their power in a diminutive way and try to control you. Or they could use the power I believe God uses, which is a power of giving and a power of extension of responsibility, right? The example being when you become a teenager and you're a brat and your parent is like, um, you know, wanting to give you money, an allowance, some level of extension of their responsibility. It is not your money. You didn't make it, right? And yet your parent said, I'm going to give you $100 and I'm going to trust you to spend this $100 in any way you see fit, right? That's that parent giving you dominion, giving you responsibility to where however you choose to spend that $100 is only given to you through the power of your parent. They made the money, they chose to give you the money, and it's under their creative care that they will watch you spend that money. The example will break down at some point, so don't get too carried away with it. But you see that God is not exerting his power in a way of controlling but in a way of giving it away to share it with human beings. This becomes very important when we get here. Rochelle. What's like God's motivation in giving us like that power? Yeah, the author... Yeah, the author here doesn't expressly say it. However, as you read the story and as we look towards it, I do really, really believe that the motivating factor is love. Because when you reflect on why a parent would do that, you would maybe have a million guesses. They want to raise a good kid. They want to do this. But actually, even this idea, why have children? Why even have a kid? Right? They're smelly. They yell at you. They act drunk all the time. Like, why? <laughs> the reason people decide to have children is in order to express a kind of love they're unable to do by themselves. Um, and God seems to be that kind of God. Like, God was existing before time in a triune nature, eternally existing, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, totally content. No need for all this mess. Right? No need for the, you know, um, 
the craziness that comes with a cosmos. But I really do believe as you read the story, there's only one guess, and it's the motivating factor of love, that God wanted his love that he has within himself to be outpoured into his creation and experienced with his creation and with himself, the same way that someone would have a child, is to experience that level of love. Yeah. Um, I noticed in verse 26, God says, let us yeah. stand in our image. Yeah, good. Everywhere else it's singular. Why mm. is not wanting to just put plural? It's a great question. And who's yeah, who is the us? So this whole time, God is saying, let there be light. Let there be, let there be, let there be. And then 26 slows down and says, let us make man in our image, mankind, in our image, in our likeness. There's two guesses to this. One is that this is our first peak at the Trinity, that this is the triune us, the Father, Son, Spirit, making uh, humanity in our image. The other, probably more probable definition, is that God is speaking to the heavenly hosts, his angels. Because if you took my spiritual warfare class, or it is on the podcast, so you could also go back and listen, there is actually a lot of connection between this language and the language of like angels and demons, right? Is that God gave dominion to human beings, but also he gave dominion to angelic beings, and that we don't just live in a physical world but part of the cosmos is the spiritual world is this idea of becoming kind of like the holy hosts and god's saying kind of to angels around him like let's make man like us except they're not going to rule the spiritual realm they'll rule the physical realm they'll be over the earth does that make sense great question yeah um one more question please so Definitely, definitely. And I think there's there's a way you can hear everything I just taught you and be like, that seems not like God. And again, this is where we have to say uh, we don't get to choose the world God created. We don't get to choose the kind of God he is. I think what's in here is the true use of true power. This is really how power is to be used. Every You all, uh, it's really funny. I, I interview people as part of what I do here at Awakening, right? And everyone tells me, you know, part of my work style, I don't like to be micromanaged. I'm waiting for the person who's like, I'm really looking for someone to micromanage me. <laughs> like, that person never shows up, right? Like, I just want to be checked in on constantly. I want to be mistrusted, and I want to be controlled. Can you offer me that here at Awakening, you know? I'm like, because we know, we know. It's the same way, right, with, with when we were teenagers. We always wanted our parents off our back. Just stop talking to me. Just let, will you trust me? You want me to text you when I show up to here and go here? I'm going to call you every morning of every day, right? Don't you trust me, right? That's, the, that's what true power is. We know it. We just forget it and we manipulate power. But really, I believe our God-given design, the way that God employs power, is by sharing it and giving it and actually laying it down in certain places. And that, of course, is the cross, is it not? Um, Jesus shows up and everybody's like, why don't you just destroy and take yourself off the cross and like, don't endure this. And he's like, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down as a ransom for many, right? I, I willingly lay my life down. I don't, I'm not here to do anything else other than show you what true power is, which is the cross. A man crucified on the outskirts of town, naked, ashamed, betrayed, 
True power is the ability to not fight back. True power is the ability to act nonviolently in the face of violence. We've seen that in all of our historical examples, Mandela, Martin Luther King. Those people are truly powerful people that never wielded violence, that never exerted control. Why are they powerful people? Because they do this kind of stuff. They act like God. Yeah. Yeah. You talked a lot about cosmos, but like it says like God gave dominion. So like humans can have dominion over the earth. So like is the Bible like would you say like a story about earth? <laughs> I definitely think so. Like yeah. That's earth. Definitely. I think that actually, yeah, uh, Joshua Ryan Butler has a great book called The Skeletons in God's Closet, and in it he says, we in Christianity like to tell a story about heaven and hell, but the Bible tells a story about heaven and earth. Mm -hmm. So yes, the Bible's a story about earth, definitely is an earth-focused story, um, really nothing about extraterrestrial uh, planets or anything like that, despite weird internet searches you could go down. There's really nothing about aliens in the Bible. Um, it's really a story about Earth, but it's about Earth's interaction with heaven, where God is. So, like, when it's, like, new, and you're saying, like, it's coming down. Yes, very good. Then that's, like, cosmos. Yeah, that's bringing heaven back. So, actually, in Eden, if you'll notice, um, heaven and Earth are interacting in Eden all the time. God, and we're going to get to chapter 2, I promise. Uh, as we walk through this story, God is interacting with creation. Again, he made the bed and is making the bed, right? He, 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 he is having two forms of creation all the time going on. In Genesis 1 and 2, that relationship is very tight between heaven and earth, between God and his creation. That's what breaks next week. And that's what we continue breaking and learn about ourselves is that we actually don't. See, as much as we want to say we want God, we don't. We really don't. And that's where Jesus comes to show us his true heart to buy us back. So yeah, I think the relationship is really tight right now in the story. It's part of what the author's trying to do, yeah. Good questions. God, God creates uh, mankind in his image. The word for image is the word for icon. Um, in the same way that these icons down at the bottom of my screen represent larger programs, right? If I click on Chrome, it's a browser. I click on this software we're in right now, it's this Bible software. But it represents a larger image of itself. It, this is a small representation of a more complex and larger program. That's the same way with the, what it means to be a human being. What it means to be a human being is to be a small representative of a much larger and complex human being that's formed with programming that we can't even imagine, right? We're just these kind of little pictures that point to the larger thing. That's kind of what it means to be made in the image of God. We're these tiny little representatives that should remind we should be looking at each other, reminding each other of God. That's why murdering someone is one of the worst things scripture talks about. To take a life is unimaginable. That's why sexual immorality is so impossible for the authors. Sexual purity is so important to the authors. Why? Because to be made in the image of God is that you, you are pointing to a more bigger thing than yourself, more complex, robust, beautiful uh, being than you as a human. So to violate that in any particular way, to harm that in any particular way, to cease its life um, is a grave, grave sin because you're pointing to a larger uh, being. And that's why God is very emphatic here in creating uh, male and female in his image. God blesses the creation uh, of man and woman and tells them the same thing as the animals. He's creating the cosmos, and he's saying, be fruitful and multiply. 
And so this is kind of leading us to our final uh, little section here, is that this idea of care. And care, so sorry, cosmos, did I say that? The function of creation, sorry, at the top, the function of creation. And then down at care is the goodness of creation. And this is where you start to get some of the repetition back. One thing it says over and over and over again is this word good. It's that first word under there. God saw this. God created it, or said it, created it, saw it, and then said it was good. Said it was good, said it was good, said it was good. The Hebrew word is this word tov. And it's just saying over and over again, it's tov, it's tov, it's tov. And then look at this verse. Um, be fruitful and multiply. Ah, here we go. Verse 31. God saw everything that he had made. So, okay, he makes the humans. He says, make more humans and also eat a lot. Just enjoy it. That's part of being in the cosmos. It's like, it's order and abundance, baby. Like, it's just like, I'm going to give you plants and livestock. I'm going to give you birds and fish. And you can have dominion over all of it, and you can eat all of it. And it can be in those orders of having your fruits and vegetables and your meat, the food pyramid. And you can also have a lot of it. Just enjoy it. It's all, it's all yours for the taking. Um, everything in breath. And look at and it was so, and God sees everything, and behold, so it, it, it was very good. And my favorite part about when you read this in Hebrew, it's saying like, it was tov, it was tov, it was tov, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then here it says, it was tov tov. <laughs> it's like, this is super tov. It was like, and so like our translation is very good, but it just looks funny in the Hebrew. It's just tov tov. Uh, which the Hebrew, that, like when it says, uh, like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, it literally just says that three times. Because it's trying to show you that God is not just holy. He's like holy, 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 you know? And creation and the world and the earth is not just tov. It's tov tov. It's not just good. It is like so, so good. And, and, and that kind of image that God has of the earth he created this is where we got to get a little personal. That includes you. So, like, as a pastor, that's a huge thing I want you to know is, like, you are a part of the thing God looked at and created and said, it's so good. Which should give you, you know, th this is before you existed. You know, this is before any of the people we know existed. And God just looks at the stuff he made and he goes, this is great. And by the way, he's looking at stuff that's in the abundance. You know, could be the three-legged dog in there, right? There could be the genetic dysfunction. There could be the disease. We, we, we don't know. We see an abundant world with a lot of mutations. And God goes, this is really, really good. And here's the other thing. The word tov, it literally means good. And it doesn't mean perfect. I say this a lot. I probably said it to you in some type of teaching. So one huge error in creation theology that I see Christians make is they think at this point in the story, the earth is perfect. 
and the Bible never told you it was perfect. There's actually a really perfect word for perfect in the Hebrew. <laughs> so you, he could have used it here. God saw the light first day after making the light, and he saw that it was perfect. There's actually a, a word that in Hebrew means, like, we translate it perfect, but it means completed, fully completed. They don't even use that word here. It's just good. It's just really, really good. So God made a good world. He didn't make a perfect world. Very important. And that is emphasized over and over and over again. The other thing that's emphasized is that he blesses. God blessed the human beings. That word means to bestow a gift and a function. Because look at what God, when God blesses things, it's not just like a holy, uh, like, touch on the forehead or something like that, or some kind of sign of the cross on your forehead. To be blessed in the biblical sense, in the, in the like Old Testament Genesis 128 sense, is to be given a gift and a function. And God gives uh, living creatures a gift and a function, and he gives human beings a gift and a function. And the gift he gives human beings is he's, you're made in his image, that's the gift, and the function is to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue and dom have dominion over the earth. Um, that's in that line. Be fruitful and multiply, Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all the fish and the birds and the heavens and the air. Everything that moves on the earth. So your gift and your function is to be made and to know that you are made in God's image. To multiply on the earth. That doesn't just mean have babies. That doesn't just mean have babies. That means help the creation multiply. Plant trees, right? House a couple of dogs and have them make more dogs, right? Mm -hmm. Um, have a fish as a pet, right? <laughs> it, means, it means to care for the creation, too, right? I think there's a lot of, lot of theology in here, which, you know, I think I brought this up in an old, another school of faith, but um, to have dominion over the earth and then to see the moment we're in right now with the climate crisis, is it God to blame? He kind of gave it to us to care for. Yeah. It's very interesting. We are to have dominion over it. To subdue it means to, like, put it into submission, to arrange it. I love this. This is actually an artistic term in Hebrew. It's like, to like, you know, if you've ever, like, made a clay pot, right? You take this lump of clay and you create it into something. You, you subdue it. You put pressure around it to create it into something it was once not. And that's what God wants you to do on the earth. He wants you to, he, I, I, you know, I don't believe that we should be living in tents, uh, you know, enjoying God's creation and hugging trees, even though I'm from Portland. Um, I don't, I'm not that much of a hippie, but um, I do think he wants us to make buildings and build cars and build technology and subdue the earth. I, I don't think he looks at all of the advancements we've made and think that they're terrible. I think that's part of the function he gave us and blessed us to do it. So it's like when he says like give dominion like to all humans, right? And then you bring the uh, the concept of like cosmos as in like there's balance, you know, of yeah. like things in the earth. It's like where's the limitations of like human dominion in uh, the sense of like 
now we're able to remove certain genetics from like you know mental disorders or like physical disorders into birth you know yes I think that's the exact question I think that those those conversations without a theological understanding uh, are dangerous questions um, so there's a board at Stanford right now of like people um, talking about genetic uh, mutations and things that we can do before birth, ways that we can choose male or female. And it's interesting because they have scientists on this board, they have literature professors, history professors, but there's no theologian. And to me, the answer, how we answer that question is built into how we understand who we are. What do we have choice over and what do we not have choice over? Um, what is it that we were given as a gift and what were we given as a function? And uh, so, yeah, that's a way to not answer your question because I actually think that, that that is the question. I really think we have to wrestle with that at a theological level. Do we mess with and do we alter that which God has designed? Do we redesign it? Um, yeah, because I think like even even how we've messed with creation, like I said, with the climate crisis, would would actually teach us some things, right? Like we have messed with the earth at a level that has now affected the earth and is affecting our lives. So, would wisdom say that we should mess with human life at a similar level, right? These are again, I'm not saying I have answers to these questions, but I do think they're important for us to think theologically about them, because without theology, I think we. We're a little bit lost. We're just going to think about utilitarian use. Um, well, this is good. This is what we would want. Um, but right there, are, anyone who's ever experienced a family member, a sibling, or had a child uh, who's been disabled will know the great gift that that child has to you as a person. But the scientific community perhaps would say, well, that person's going to suffer and they're going to have this life that we would never wish upon another person or something like that. But every person who's known someone who's had mental disabilities or physical disabilities has known that they know something about life that I don't. And theologically, we would understand that to be part of the gift of the cosmos uh, for how difficult and how sinful. And we're going to get to the fall, which includes a lot of this, some of the mutations and the difficulties that creation took on as we rebelled against. I won't get too far into that, but that's next week. Um, yeah, let's not go down that rabbit trail right now, but that's really good. Um, God blesses, God says it's good, God blesses, he rests, which is the word Shabbat, which is where you get the word Sabbath, that is to this day, the word that you would use, and it just means he ceased, he stopped. So another important thing to know about creation is that creation has a pace. A lot of commentators will tell you, like, God did not rest because he was tired, um, that we know to be true. God is constantly on the move. It seemed he just wanted to enjoy all the work that he had done, which is why we get in verse 3. God actually blessed. Oh, he gave us a gift and a function, right? Blessing. Here it is again. Here's that Hebrew word once more. He blessed it, which is the word baraka, by the way. He blessed it in the seventh day, and he made it holy. That just means to separate it. He just blessed that day and he separated that day because God rested from all the work that he had done. Holy doesn't mean like uh, righteous or religiously 
um, astute or anything like that. It just literally means to set aside. Like I've always said, uh, like handicap spots are holy. They're just set aside. It's very easy to do. And God, in his sense, is holy because he's been set aside. He's been set aside for a particular purpose. And he creates this seventh day and sets it aside. He makes it holy, and he gives it the function that everything should cease on the seventh day. At work, and thinking, and, you know, um, all those things should just, you should just cease for a day. Um, and he blesses that and makes it holy because he himself did it. Um, Then we get chapter two. Okay, chapter one, I want you to view Genesis chapter one, just to kind of zoom out for a second. That Genesis chapter one is a zoom out poetic expression of the entire creation of everything you've ever seen or known. Okay, what's up there and what's down there? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's up there and what's down there? That's Genesis one. It's like this huge, massive, poetic picture of like God creating light, darkness, creeping things, flying things in the air, okay? And then he blesses, he rests, and then you get this weird verse, four. These are the generations of the heaven and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God created the heavens and the earth. And you get a description of land, and you get this description of God forming a man and putting breath in his nostrils, the breath of life. That word breath is the word ruach, which actually has already appeared in Genesis. It's back here. It's this word, spirit. The ruach of God was hovering over the waters. It's the same word for breath. And down here, you have God giving his ruach to who? Who is he giving his breath to? The man of the dust of the ground. But wait, didn't he already create man? In 126, 27, 28? So see, this is where you get when you're like super literal with it. You're going to get like these questions. You're going to be like, wait, what? I don't know what to do. Okay, chill. It's not meant to be taken like absolute literalism. It's meant to be taken literarily. So this is what I mean. Yes, God created man up here. But here it seems as though God's creating a particular man. Out of the dust of the ground and this man became a living creature and God breathed his ruach, his life, his divinity and his spirit into this man, this particular man. Why do I know it's a particular man? <laughs> I love this line. He put the man in a particular place. Okay, so this is where the Bible kind of messes with you a little bit, because the question is, didn't he already create man? Yes, he created mankind, but here we are in chapter two. So if chapter one's this big, massive, like God created everything, including man that are made in his image, I think this is a zoom in. This is a zoom in in chapter two on a particular place and a particular man in a particular moment that God met with this man and created this one man and put the breath in his nostrils, created him out of the dust of the ground. What I mean if you wanna get like super like literal with this is that other human beings were created before Adam, okay? Now, you can disagree with me on that and we can still be in the same church, okay? It's okay. <laughs> You, again, Genesis 1-1, you believe God created what's up there and what's down here? We're cool, okay? You can disagree with me, and, and, and there's actually a lot of really awesome arguments against that. Um, I see this and read this as a zoom in of the zoom out. 
There was like this big zoom out of the whole creation. And then we get this man who's planted and formed and God puts him in a garden. And out of the ground, the, uh, the Lord made spring up every tree. And then you go, whoa, hold on. Didn't he already make trees? We already saw the plants and the vegetation. Yes, yes, yes. It seems as though God is creating a particular place. How do I know that? Well, look at this. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. So wait a second. And it's a particular kind of tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see what I'm saying? There was a particular man put in a particular place. Now there's a particular tree put in a particular place. And here, this is where you get super weird, which nobody likes to talk about this section of scripture. We just get a little geography. What's the author doing? He's trying to tell you where all this is happening. That did not concern him in chapter one. Chapter one was like, dude, God created everything. Like everything you see, it's all God. He all created by his word. He created it out of nothing. And then he ordered it and arranged it and filled it. He just like dumped a whole bunch of that. He wasn't just like one fish, two fish. He was like a bunch of fish. He was just pulling all the stops out. And then here though, it's like, hey, don't you know that second river, Gihon? It's the one that flowed the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river around this area called Eden is the river Tigris. You know this, right? Right, guys? Don't you know this? Now, see, an ancient Hebrew word would, right? An ancient Hebrew would read this and go, oh, I know right where that is. Like, I know where the Tigris River is. And I know, I, I see now God is zooming in on a particular landmass that God has created a man and some garden stuff, and he's kind of creating a little world. Now, where is this? <laughs> Which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Um, there'd have to be a really rich geography nerd in here to know where this is. But as you look at this on an ancient map, it's where Israel is. So strangely, you think the story of Israel starts with Abraham. The story of Israel starts with Adam. And this is really important to the Bible story because what we're going to hear as the story goes through is you're going to read a lot of genealogies. Got some reading for you. You have an email in your inbox right now. It has an email plan or a reading plan to not just read some of the drama of scripture, but to read some of your Bible along with it. And in Genesis 1 through 11, you're going to come across a little too many genealogies than you want to. And you're going to be like, why are these here? Because the author is trying to tell you that the story of God's people does not start with Abraham, it starts with Adam. And this is really important in the zoom in of creation because God, it seems, is currently initiating his relationship with human beings through a particular place, in a particular place, okay? So, and I know that because God is breathing his ruach, his spirit into Adam. And so, were there other people before Adam? I believe there were. I believe Adam was the first one who came to know God and who God came to know him. That God's relationship with Adam was the one that started. Now, when did this start? I don't know, who cares, right? At some level, it started a long, long time ago, okay? But God's relationship with humanity, now there's certain theories that talk about like, right, a more like theistic evolutionary theory that's like a little bit more tied towards the theory of evolution that would say like, uh, human beings evolved over time, uh, right, as, as like, kind of like, fish, then apes, and then became human beings or whatever. And at this key time in the evolutionary uh, development, God stepped in as the consciousness was evolving, and God came to know that uh, homo sapien, to use like harsh scientific terms. I'm not totally on that side of things, but you can be. You can still be in the same church. Isn't that good news? 
Um, and you can also believe that Adam was the first person who existed, and you can also believe, why? Because this text can be taken to be interpreted in very different ways that I still believe keeps you as an Orthodox Christian. We don't gotta divide over it. We don't gotta hate each other over it. We can actually just believe God made everything, what's up there and what's down here. And the way he made that, I'll be honest with you. If you think Genesis is really clear about how God made the world, you're not reading Genesis. Because like I said, I just took you through one and two. There's like four contradictions, right? It's a little complicated document, right? That was stitched together over a long period of time over multiple authors that came to Moses' authority and Moses read it and Moses was like, this was good. This was part of the arrangement of the text. And part of the arrangement of the text was showing up of Israel. So... This is the form that God takes, and God takes the man and he puts him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And this is part of dominion and work. The Lord God took the man, this is verse 15, very important, into the garden of Eden. And by the way, that word, again, Eden literally means luxuriance, the garden of luxuriance, of abundance. God places this man in the middle, and you know what he tells this guy to do? He's like, work it, dude. Like, work this and keep this subdue it and God gives him a job I love this too by the way for those of you that hate your jobs or hate working like any human being um, work sucks but work was corrupted in the fall We're look, we'll look at it next week but work existed before the fall isn't that important work is not a result of your broken relationship with God it was affected by your broken relationship with God, and it continues to be affected by your broken relationship with God, but work is good. In fact, when we get here into new creation, you'll see images like that scripture talks about, like the new creation, when God returns heaven to earth, like people are building houses and like planting gardens. They're like doing things. They're working, because working's good. And all of you have had an experience where work is a real blessing. It's like a part of being a human being. Yeah, it's before the fall to work and keep a garden. And God puts this parameter on his first little Israelite, and he says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Let's just stop there. Is that a pretty good deal? You can do anything you want, but there's this one tree, tree of the knowledge of, the good, of good and evil, of tov and ra, good and evil. Tim Mackey, The Bible Project, he says, raw, evil, he's like, evil has too much, like, moral implications. He says it should just be translated bad. Because, like, it's more that way that, like, there's this knowledge in this, and we'll, we'll look at the tree next week, so I don't want to get too into it. But it's like this idea of knowing good and bad. You shall not eat. And the reason God, let me give you just two quick reasons why God does this. Because you go, why would he do this? Why does he just say, eat every tree? You know, you ever wonder that? Like, why do you have to give us this? Well, to go to Rochelle's question where I said, I think the only reason God, the impetus for his creation was love. Love, if the impetus of God's creation was love, love requires what? It requires a choice, right? You cannot have love if it is forced. Or I'd put it this way. You can't have love if it is coerced in the way of like, what if God created a, a world outside of Eden and just locked off Eden? And just within Eden, all they could do is just no wrong. Well, there could be no love because love has to have a choice. And God gave this choice in a very, very gracious way, I believe. You can actually do whatever you want except for one thing. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
The other reason he did this is that what does love require? Not only um, choice, but love requires trust. Okay? If I have no trust with my wife, there's no way to build a loving relationship. Um, to eat of the tree of good and bad is to say, and we'll get into this next week, is to say, I want to define what's good and bad for myself. I want to make the choices. God is offering this man life in this way. He's saying, I want you to live life under my definition of good and bad. I want, I want you to live life under my wisdom. So you don't actually have to decide what's good and bad. You can just talk to me because we are, we're in a relationship and I'll tell you what's good and bad. Good, everything, except for that tree. So live under my definition of wisdom and care and you'll be fine. Do anything you want. Go jump in a river, right? Eat a peach, kill a giraffe. I really don't care. You have dominion. You have your thing. Go do your thing. Just don't do this one thing. I'm going to let you do whatever you want except for this one thing because I want you to trust me and to make the choice to trust me so that we can have a loving relationship in the cosmos I've created and that you would live under my wisdom and guidance. So now you see where the story ends up going, right? Human beings just don't want to do that, but we're not there yet. So let's get into just these final little implications which are important. The first is an implication of biblical interpretation. And I think we're going to have 20 solid minutes of questions. Um, an implication of biblical interpretation. I've already hit on this enough, but you guys, millions, I'm not exaggerating this. I really think millions of Christians, uh, they think they're defending the Bible by defending some type of interpretation of it. But the reality is they're giving a kind of ultimate authority to an interpretation as opposed to ultimate authority of the actual text. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the implications of, of the creation story is that the creation theology is way more open-handed than you think. It's way more open-handed than you think. And I'll just say as a pastor for 10 years and navigating this through seminary, and my goodness, you should have seen the seminary discussions we had, People got fiery. People divided over this. People have yelled at each other about over this. I really think we're towards the end. I think our generation is, is, is over it and also understands some of the nuances I've hopefully described to you today, that there are multiple ways to interpret this passage and hold to the biblical historic conviction that God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it, and we are made in the image of God. There are some things we have to close our fist around. Those are the things. But what other people have said is we have to close our fist around a particular interpretation of what that means. Not just close our fist around God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, close our fist around that. That's orthodoxy. That's Christianity. That's theology. That's good theology. But they also want you to close their fist around, well, no, this is the particular way in which you created it. Right? See, that's where, that's where churches kind of get in trouble. So that's a huge implication. Another implication is an implication of anthropology. What is anthropology? It's answering the question, what is a human being and who are human beings? Man, I've been thinking about this a lot more in the Silicon Valley. Chris, to your question about CRISPR and like different genetic things we're doing right now. We actually have a huge implication in this and what does it mean to be a human being created by God, for God, to do work and to join together and not be alone? That's where the next thing I wanna take you to in this little passage. God has said up until Genesis 
that every single freaking thing he created was good. In fact, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he doesn't say that the tree is bad. That's really important. We'll get that to next week. There's nothing mystical and creepy about the tree that's a bad tree. It's just the tree he doesn't want them to touch. Okay? There's nothing inherently bad about it. Okay? God did not create evil. We'll get to that next week. Okay? God created this cosmos. And he only gets to one thing in 18 that he says is not good. What does he say is that's not good? You guys are so quiet. Good grief. <laughs> it's not good that what? That the man should be alone. So everything is good except he creates this dude in the, next to the Tigris River in the Euphrates somewhere in ancient Israel. And he creates this dude and he puts him in the garden and he's like, hey, name these animals. He's like, hey, walk around. Hey, work. Hey, keep this. And he's looking at him going, this is not, this dude's, a, this is bad. <laughs> everything's been, everything's been tove and very tove, tove, tove. This is raw. This is bad. That's Hebrew word for bad. This is, this is raw. This is not good. It's not good that this dude is just out here working alone. He's going to become a workaholic or he'll discover video games. And it's like, that's not good. So I'll make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field, right? So he tries to actually create beasts of the field to be a living creature. And that just doesn't work. And then, but for Adam, there's no helper fit for him. Before I go on, the word helper, very problematic to a lot of people. Uh, an issue that actually has like brought out a lot of like chauvinism and stuff and misogyny. Uh, let me kill that right now. The the word helper in the Hebrew is the word azer, azer, a z a r. If you want to spell it phonetically, azer. That word is uh, we've dis we've translated helper, and it means one who uh, who does for another that which the other cannot do for themselves. Um, let me say it again. Someone who does something for someone else that the person cannot do for themselves, okay? There's only one other uh, instance this word is used. There's, oh, sorry, there's multiple instances, but only one other noun it's attached to, and that's God. So there's an azer that is a woman that is going to do for the man that which he cannot do for himself. You never see this word in all of the Old Testament describing anyone else except for God being the Azer. Because for man, there are only two things that can do for man that which he cannot do for himself. And it's a woman and Azer. And, and, and God. A woman and God. Two Azers. A woman and God. Meaning, you have to form yourself in community. And there's things that men cannot do and ways men cannot lead and ways men cannot experience life and work without the azer. Just the same way that there's no way the man can experience life and work and righteousness without his other azer, God. So that doesn't mean, now, a lot of people would twist this and be like, you gotta get married or you're half a Christian. <laughs> that is not what it is saying. <laughs> Even though there's a wedding that's about to take place here, uh, and marriage is great. I've been married for nine years. It's awesome. Highly recommend, but it's not necessarily, we know the rest of scripture would tell you that it's not necessary. Here's what is necessary. Community uh, with the other gender. It's absolutely essential in scripture. Men cannot lead without women. Um, men cannot be 
a parent without a woman. Men can't work without women. And actually, if you study history, we get in a lot of trouble when men just are alone and when men just hang out with themselves. Uh, I remember going to this uh, interesting museum that cataloged some of the gravest and difficult areas of poverty, very heart-wrenching exhibit uh, that was called the Real Life Exhibit. And it just took on all the major humanitarian crises in the world. It was a terrible, terrible experience, but um, probably a necessary one. Anyways, I was going through it with my friend, and it's like, man, you look at Rwandan genocide in the 90s, and you look at Hitler in Western Europe, and you look at apartheid in South Africa, and you look at some of the atrocities in Africa today, and Mexico, and the drug, you just look at all this crap. And my friend left that, and he was like, man, it like showed you the roots of a lot of this stuff, and he's like, man, that exhibit could have just been called Men Suck. <laughs> that has always stuck with me, and it always reminds me when I see the Azer, because it's that important. It has a huge anthropological, this is what I mean, a huge anthropological implication, which is men and women must live together and work together for the flourishing of human societies. It is absolutely essential. In, like, we say it all the time, man, it's ev everything like in life is impossible except with God, all things are possible because God is our azer. But like men also have to act like, they're wim like women in their life is their azer as well. They, they cannot think about the world correctly and lead correctly without their azers. Um, and there's only two places. I, I think it's intentional throughout the Old Testament for uh, the scriptures to never, ever bring up that word again other than with God himself as the only other helper. Um, the other implication is that they should work together. Um, if you notice, that actually a lot of like Hebrew like rabbis actually point this out more than Christians, which I think is really interesting. When he slept, he took one of his ribs um, and actually that's really important because there's other ancient creation narratives that take the man's foot because man is the head of the woman basically and on top of the woman and, and the woman is submissive to the, to the man or, or they take the head and the woman is, is submissive over it but the rib is side by side and so there's actually kind of a connection of equality and equity that's being maybe placed there um, is that it's taken the rib is kind of an interesting choice but yeah um, it seems to be kind of metaphorical, um, if not literal. So, yeah, and then an implication of physical creation. Um, I, I kind of went over this already. So an implication of biblical interpretation, anthropology, physical creation, how we treat the earth, how we treat our bodies, really important. And then an implication of purpose is the last one, an implication of purpose. Uh, and, and here's what I mean. To go back to this story to kind of wrap us up here and then take some questions is like um, the Bible doesn't start in Genesis 3. We're going to get to Genesis 3, and this is the story of the fall. But this Bible doesn't start here, guys. And like the Bible doesn't end here. So we develop really, really bad theology and really, really bad like purpose of who we are when we start the story in you're a rebellious, sinful, rotten human being. Like in youth ministry, it was so interesting to like teach and I didn't teach at this level to youth kids. They'd be asleep at this point. But um, when I was a youth pastor, I was always talking to the kids about how they were, like, made, like, God made them like him. And God made them as, like, a little icon. And I'd have them, like, open their phones. I'd be like, you know, like, it shows the Twitter app. Like, you're just the representation. But he's the app. He's the, like, complex algorithm, right, that you don't even understand. But you represent him. And, like, 
you know, if I were to open you up, if I were to really understand who you were in your soul and who you are as a person and your purpose as a human being, it's deeply attached to the complex algorithm that you can't understand, right? It's deeply attached to the program, to the, to the one who is God. And that implication of purpose is like really, really important, right? We can't start the story when we meet someone um, on how are you a sinner? <laughs> what are the ways in which you are crooked and backwards and wrong? Um, we run into this a lot at Awakening, right? And there's people that are living lifestyles, all sorts of lifestyles at Awakening that Christians are super uncomfortable with. And they have all kinds of, you know, philosophies and um, worldviews that, man, in our groups, as I lead our groups, like, there's a lot of conflict, man, like, for the way that people interact with each other. But I'll tell you that if we really understood each of us were made in the image of God, each, each of us were starting in Genesis 1, not in Genesis 3, uh, it would really change a lot of our a lot of our purpose and so all our hearts uh, there's a line by a theologian named Bruce Waltke he says every in every human being stands the longing for Eden like to go back here where relationships between men and women are right where relationships between man and the creation are right where even the relationship between man and himself is right. When the Lord God formed the man and breathed the breath of life into the living creature and he became a living creature. What does it mean to be a living creature? What I, what I want to end with is that the picture of life you longed for in Eden is the one God is bringing you back to. And it's a relationship of kind of a couple of different ways. The correct relationship is called righteousness in the Bible. And it's about having a right relationship with God. It's about having a right relationship with yourself. It's about having a right relationship with others. And it's about having a right relationship with all of creation. And I don't know if how many of you, how seriously you walk with the Lord, how much you love Jesus, how much you struggle in your faith. Uh, one of my seminary professors says, we got to get right that which is up there, that which is in here, that which is you, and that which is down here. And Eden has this. It's not perfect, but it has right relationships between God, others, self, rest of creation. God, others, self, rest of creation. And that the life God is leading you in is a life of righteousness, of a life that is right with him, right with others, right with yourself, and right with the rest of creation. That's why Jesus says the greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of who you are, with all your soul and with all your mind, with all of your strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor, the other person, right? Um, as yourself. Right? You have a right relationship with God, others, self, and the rest of creation. All of our hearts long for Eden. And the story of the loss of Eden and the rebellion against, the further rebellion against Eden, is when Jesus comes back, he's trying to paint for us the picture of his kingdom. And his kingdom exists in a sphere that he invites you into. And this sphere, this space, exists in a place where he offers you this kind of life. A life that's an Eden type of life. A life that is right with God, right with yourself, right with others, and right with the rest of creation. He's trying to bring us back there. And one day he will. Despite you, he will take you kicking and screaming to the new heavens and the new earth. And all of us will exist not perfectly, but rightly. And that's kind of the biblical difference.